Luke chapter 14, on page 1047, starting at verse 1. On the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There, in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisee and expert in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thank you very much. Please do keep fingering that page. We'll come back to it. Uh, and good evening. This is my, uh, it's my first time stood up at the front here, and I have to say I'm very excited for a number of reasons. One, Madonna Mike is on, <laughs> and that's always nice. Uh, and two, I thought, what an opportunity to stand up here uh, and just put it out there. I love being invited to dinner. I absolutely love it. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Louise, who sat over there with our son Finley, we've been lucky enough uh, to be invited to a number of friends as guests recently for lunch. Uh, and it's been amazing. The food was cracking. Uh, the conversation flowed like water. Uh, and Finley slept through the whole thing, so it was great. Uh, and that's how it should be, shouldn't it? In terms of getting invited to dinner. Uh, the norm is that you've been invited as a friend, and so you're catching up, you're celebrating something, uh, or they want to try out a new meal on you, or a new kitchen gadget. Uh, you get cooked for, you get looked after, you get entertained. Uh, and afterwards, the customers are to reply with lavish praise for your host. Uh, they're displaying a real appreciation for everything they've done. And normally, the ending line of, we'll have to get you back over to ours sometime. Well, the invite to dinner that we have here in Luke 14 matches absolutely none of that. No, uh, here we have Jesus invited to the dinner of the house of a prominent Pharisee to try and catch him out. Did you notice in verse 1? where it says he was to be carefully watched, to be judged, and to preferably be found doing something wrong. Equally, we see Jesus here as a guest who's going to turn the tables on his host. Instead of being the one watched, 
Jesus is going to make a number of observations about his host and their guests. The dinner invite we have here in Luke 14 breaks all the rules of a normal dinner party. And we're going to look in on it here. Uh, And uh, to help, there are going to be a number of headings uh, that we're going to work through uh, that you can make notes on the back of your card as well if you want to. So, first of all, uh, turning the tables. Look again with me uh, at verses uh, 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Jesus has been invited to the house of a prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath. And remember, this doesn't seem like it was just a friendly invite but rather an invite with a design to pick fault, to pick quarrel with Jesus. You can almost imagine the fake smile on the Pharisee's face when he invited him. Yes, Jesus, come along. It's so nice to have you. This was going to be their chance to get their dirt on him. But do you see what happens here? Jesus, in these first six verses, has completely flipped that round. He's going to focus on them. He's going to confront their beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. See, in verse 36 here, Jesus poses two questions to the Pharisees concerning the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And if one of you has a child or ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? To both of those questions, the Pharisees and the lawyers give no answer. And is that really a surprise? I mean, their design was to inform against Jesus not to be informed by him. They wouldn't say it was lawful, as this would mean they couldn't say he was committing a crime. And yet it's so plain and self-evident that they couldn't say it wasn't lawful. We also see here how Jesus brings to light their hypocrisy and misunderstanding regarding the Sabbath. Jesus goes on to heal this man. And the thing is, they're not really cross about that. They're not cross that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. No, that was the front. Really, really, they're envious. The crowds had been flocking to Jesus. There was something deeply attractive about this man and his mission. Likewise, as John pointed out a few weeks ago, uh, their teaching on the Sabbath as a day of rest, was also a misunderstanding. John reminded us that the first Sabbath came after God had made his perfect creation. And then he enjoyed this and the relationship he had created. This was broken by sin. The Sabbath is then a day of rest, but not just that, a day of rest looking forward to a better world. A world when Jesus has returned And we are made free from slavery. It is looking forward to a restored creation. Jesus may not have been invited to inform or teach them. But in these verses we see he has turned the tables and that is exactly what he was going to do. 
He's going to challenge their beliefs, their attitudes, their behaviors. He's going to bring attention in the following verses to what kind of hearts they have, what kind of hearts we have, and what kind of hearts they should have, what kind of hearts we should have in the light of the perfect creation that is to come on Jesus' return. He will demonstrate what kind of hearts we should have in approaching his table. Verses 7 to 14, we're going to look through now in the rest of this evening, outline two traits, two parts of our heart that we should have as disciples of Christ. And the first uh, is a heart of humility. A heart of humility. Let me read uh, verses 7 to 11 one more time. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, in these verses, Jesus is simply commenting on how people have sat at the table, with many uh, trying to place themselves as close as they can uh, to the host, something that would give them honor, give them status in the eyes of everyone there. So picture with me the scene, uh, a U-shaped table in the middle of a room. We think this is how they would have hosted the dinner parties, uh, with the host being at the base and the places of honor on his left and right. His guests, as the door opens, scrambling through it to get as close as they could to him, Uh, a bit like the rush on a Ryanair flight uh, when everyone's trying to get there. Power and prestige resided closest to the chair. And Jesus observes this, uh, and so he goes on to tell this parable of the wedding feast where an individual has come to grab the seat of honor only to have a more important guest arrive. At that, the host has asked that individual to move seat, but notice it's just not moving one seat down. No, it's to the seat of least importance. In such an honor and shame culture, this would be absolutely humiliating. As the parable continues, how different it is for the guest who arrives and takes that seat of lowest importance. For them, the host will move them to a higher seat, honoring them in front of all. Jesus here is pointing to the prideful hearts of the Pharisees and their guests. He's pointing to the self-exalting pride that may be in our hearts and the danger that it can bring. The principle of this parable is summarized in verse 11. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the thing is, is, is our culture really so different to that of the Pharisees? Do we not still live in a world 
where we see and are encouraged to seek status and power. So often we see uh, we live in a world where we're pushed to be better than others, to see ourselves as better than others. Just take the TV show The Apprentice, and we're just going to watch uh, a short clip. I think the world is full of way too many wafflers and not enough doers. I mean, I, I talk the talk, I walk the walk, and I dance the dance. I'm an absolute handful. Uh, keeping me grounded is, is probably what most bosses have said they've struggled with me in the past. I'm very aggressive, very, very aggressive. I will not leave the room without getting a sale. I've got the personality and the charm, sure, but I've also got the knowledge to back it up. I mean, personality and charm is nothing if you don't know what you're talking about. I have absolute belief in myself and I have a plan for my whole life. I have, I'm one of the most goal-orientated people you meet. I know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow, in five years, in ten years, and when I'm 85. There's only one person getting a business offer from Lord Sugar. That person's going to be me. So what I'm going to have to do is no matter if they're the nicest guy, the best-looking girl, the most able people, whoever it is, I need that investment to start my revolutionary business. I need Lord Sugar. I have to win this. Love The Apprentice. Now, I could have shown you any audition tape in any, any part of the show where they're at Lord Sugar's table, though the, the language might have been slightly dodgy in some of them. Um, but did you notice? Do you notice? I, 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 I. Look how good I am. Look at what I've done. Look at how much better I am. Or how much better I did compared to someone else. That's the premise of the show. And I know, I know that the show is meant to highlight that. It's meant to. But the sad thing is that it's not too far, really, from what the world shows or expects to be desirable. And, and this has got me thinking recently about how I am at work. I'm a secondary school teacher. Uh, and it got me thinking, first of all, about results day. I have a very different experience to the students in many respects. Uh, but one of my first thoughts on results day when I log on or I get into school is to look at how my class has done to the class of someone else. Not for the benefit of the students, but for the benefit of my ego. Or how often in conversations or meetings, especially recently, I've dropped in things that I have done, thinking I'm being really helpful and giving a really good idea. But am I actually just really wanting recognition? Or even thinking back uh, to interviews and letters of application I've written, making myself out to be utterly amazing, to be better than anyone else. I see, a heart of humility is countercultural in many ways. Now, can you imagine uh, being invited to dinner with Jesus? Lord of creation, and deciding, yes, I'm going to sit right next to him because I deserve that seat. I am closer in status and power to him than anyone else in that room. I deserve to go to heaven because of how good I am or how well I think I have done. In the Pharisees' perspective, how well they've done 
at fulfilling the law or even just how much better I am at it than someone else. See, what Jesus is pointing out here in these, these, in these verses uh, is how ridiculous, how utterly, utterly ridiculous that would be and how dangerous it would be, how it would actually lead to our demise and to our fall. This isn't how we're to come to God. We are not to come with a sense of a right to blessing. We cannot earn that place at his table through deeds, or as the Pharisees saw it, keeping the law. Instead, we need to recognize our desperate need for God. Our desperate need for him. We need to recognize that ultimately we fall short of his glory and are therefore completely and utterly reliant on his grace. It is only through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, that we are able to come to God and to heaven. We are to come to him humble in heart, trusting completely in the fact that the only reason we can is because of Jesus. The challenge is therefore to lose our prideful hearts. In humbling ourselves before God, we're challenged to live with a humble heart, not just at weddings, but every day with those around us. We shouldn't be looking to place ourselves above others or to put others down. Instead, we need to consider how we act and how we speak, knowing our own limits, knowing we are not necessarily the best, being grateful for what we have and avoiding bragging, appreciating others and their qualities, listening to others and remaining teachable. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a heart of humility. Secondly, uh, so we've noticed there that Jesus identified prideful hearts at this meal. But look again at verses 12 to 14 with me and we'll see there's something else that we need to spot. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Here, Jesus is drawing attention to those that the host has chosen to invite to this meal. Look around the room and you'll see friends, relatives, rich neighbors. There's a purpose to this meal. And it's not just to catch Jesus out. No, the purpose is for the benefit of the host. See, in the Pharisees' culture, the invite of a meal to particular people was a way to secure themselves and invite someone else's house. It was a way of cultivating support, popularity, and make gains in society. This was payback hospitality. I wonder how often we're like this. How often we do something with the hope, or even the knowledge, that we're going to get something from it in return for ourselves. Maybe you've always wanted to have the invite to that person's house for dinner, 
So invite them to yours first. Maybe you've showered someone a coffee, hoping that maybe they'll get the one the next time. Or maybe you buy the first round uh, of drinks on the night out so you can sit back and enjoy the rest of the evening not having to worry about another. Uh, Part of the reason I asked Lou to marry me uh, was I'd heard that uh, John and Ruth did marriage prep and I knew Ruth was a cracking cook. (laughs) So I hoped it might be a way in. Uh, Obviously, that's not true at all. Uh, But Ruth is a cracking cook, I can confirm that. But this goes beyond dinner. It goes way beyond dinner. What's been revealed here, again, in the heart of the Pharisee, in our heart, is that ultimately is a selfish one. Doing things for the benefit of oneself. What Jesus makes clear here is that this type of payback hospitality, it has no merit, and it's not the type of heart he wants us to have. Now, what I don't think uh, Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't be having dinner with friends or family. It's good to cultivate and build up those relationships. No, I think the key in this little section here is what it follows and how it, he- how it ends. It's, it's the motivation to have this heart of generosity. As we, as we noted in the other verses together, we're to humble ourselves before God. Recognizing our ultimate need for Christ, it is all about grace. Therefore, in experiencing this grace from God, it should affect how we relate to all those around us. Not looking to gain status or favor, but being gracious and loving to all, just as Christ is. God reaches out to all. His grace reaches out to all. And so that is the heart we should also strive to have. A heart of grace, of overflowing generosity. This is what Jesus highlights uh, when noting in verse 13 who the host should look to invite to dinner. Look again at that list in verse 13. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. These people would not have been able to pay that host back or bring him status or wealth. No, more than likely, it would lead to the host being ridiculed and ostracized by his peers. In this world, the host would see no repayment. However, look at verse 14 again for me, please. And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In that act of generosity, in inviting the poor, the lame, and the crippled, they'll be blessed and repaid at the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the second motivation for being generous. We should be forward-looking, not looking to seek status or payback from this world, but to honor God in the light of the new creation that is to come. Chapter 3 ends, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So how does that apply to us now then? What What does a generous heart look like. And we could look at this passage literally for an answer to this. Being generous could mean branching out who you invite to your next meal. Maybe someone in need. 
someone who wouldn't, we wouldn't expect anything back from. And another obvious answer could be what we do with our money, our property, giving to the church or other charities. And both those things are obviously good and good examples of generosity. But as I said moments ago, it's about having a heart of generosity to all. So we have to look beyond the dinner table. Take the story Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan back in Luke chapter 10. A generous man to someone he didn't know. To someone who should have been his enemy. Yet he gave that man his time. He gave him his skills. And he gave him his resources to help him. Just look at the example of Jesus himself in the gospel. The time he gave to others. The words he shared. And ultimately the life he gave. Now I'm not standing here this evening claiming that I do all these things. Ask my wife and she'll tell you how stingy I am with money. Quite regularly. How poor at talking to her I can be. And how I let my time be dominated by my want to have status and power at work. But this, this passage has challenged me uh, over the past few days and weeks about how I really need to check my heart. How I need to come to Jesus with humility. And how I need to be more generous than the time I give to my family during the week. How I need to ask Lou much more just how she's doing and how I can support her. And how I need to do that without a need or a want to be repaid. But because of what God has already done to me and for me. And what is to come. In the week to come, I know I'm going to be thinking that. I wonder if you will now as well. How could you be more generous with your time this week? How could you be more generous with your words? How could you be more generous with your actions? As we finish, I can only imagine uh, that the Pharisee who'd handed that invite to Jesus uh, for his lunch with the hope of trapping him was probably pretty devastated at the way that plan had worked out. Or maybe uh, Jesus' words and observations transformed his life. We're not told here by Luke. But what we do know is that Jesus' words, his heart of humility, and his heart of generosity did, does, and will continue to transform lives until he returns. Jesus had turned the tables completely on his host, revealing the true nature of his heart as being one of pride and selfishness. Ask yourself, how different are our hearts sometimes? I know mine is not. Instead, what Jesus demands here are hearts of humility and generosity, enabled and motivated by what he has already done and what he will do. It is these hearts that Jesus wants for his disciples. It is with these hearts that we should love 
those around us. And it is with these hearts that we need to come to God with. And this is, in fact, what we're going to do now this evening with the Lord's Supper. Just listen to the words that are going to be said and hear how God demonstrates such overwhelming humility and generosity in offering himself in Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, for the sins of the entire world. We are not worthy so much as to gather the crumbs from beneath his table, the table of the creator of the universe. And yet, we are invited to this table because of his grace to share in this bread and wine to remember Christ's sacrifice so that we can come to God in heaven. I just want to finish uh, with a prayer uh, using the words that we're going to say together actually in a moment because it's just uh, a cracking place to end. It brings it uh, all to Jesus, the ultimate example of a generous and humble heart, and the Holy Spirit, the power that enables us to look more like him. So let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy in sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins. And now in gratitude, we offer you our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Send us out into the world in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen.